you would, turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 25 through 32 today. And as you are turning there, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you the story of how I met my wife. I was in graduate school. Tracy was as well. And having no money, we decided to be resident assistants because you get a free place to live and a little extra cash. A little, a little extra cash. But that was crucial. So we met at a training and orientation for RAs. And I knew that I had to get to know her. So I did what guys sometimes do. I devised a plan. You see, I knew if I threw an event for all of our students, she would have to come because she has students. It's brilliant. Fail-proof. So I worked all the details out, including with the guys in my riser. See, I let them know that when this thing was done... I had something I had to do, which means they needed to clean up, and that had to happen. So we have this movie night, everybody's there, everything's going according to plan, and Tracy, after the movie, is talking with some of her friends, and she remarks, man, it's such a nice night, I'm going to go for a walk. And this girl was not even talking to me, and I invited myself on a walk. Great idea. I would love to join you. Wait, what? No, like absolutely not. Like, don't you have to go clean up? Actually, I have a plan. See, look, the guys are cleaning up. Like, they're, it's all good. I can come with you. She had no other objections. So we went for a walk. I got to know my wife a little bit that night. And I continued to get to know her. We dated not right away, because for a long time, Tracy actually probably really didn't even like me. She just put up with me, which was kind of her. But eventually, bit by bit, I got to know her, and she got to know me. And as I got to know her, as I loved her, the way I lived in the world changed because my love changed. You see, I didn't come home from work the same way anymore. No, now I would go by Sonic and pick up a slushie for each of us so that we could share that and talk about our day. When something important happened, the person I texted, the person that I picked up the phone to call was different now. It was her. I would hear a song on the radio and think of her. As I fell in love with her, my life changed. And it's continued since we got married. See, we got married and there's this thing about getting married. You see, before I was married, I was not married, which means I was a bachelor, which means I lived by myself, which means I had a different standard of what is clean and not clean than my wife does. As someone who cares deeply about efficiency and productivity, I would drink soda cans and I would just leave the empty cans out because there was no sense in throwing them away one at a time. It would be more productive to just wait and throw them all away at one time when someone's coming over. I continued this habit into early on in our marriage until my wife went on a trip and she came back and I don't know, if you collected all the cans that were literally in every room of our apartment, it would have been probably 20 or 25 cans. And this was the breaking point. You see, at this point, my old habits weren't sustainable anymore because my loves had changed. In this moment, I had to decide not only who and what did I love, I had to make a decision about how I was going to live in light of that love. 
And the point of this story isn't about falling in love with your future spouse. It's a story instead about what it means to love anything in the world. You'll get a glimpse of this if you've ever met someone who does CrossFit or is a vegan. (laughs) This isn't a dig at CrossFitters or vegans. I'm just saying, if you meet them, you get really quick what it is they love because our loves change the way we live in the world. So whether you're single or married, young or old, this story is our story. It is the human story of what it is to love. And have our actions changed because of that love. And when we fall in love, it changes our words. It changes our actions. It changes what we think about. It transforms what we long for. And this is the question we're going to be getting at for the entirety of our time today. The text is going to confront us with what it is that we love. And based on that love, how then will we live? So let's ask God for help as we get started today. God, Apart from you, we are dead. We have no hope. We have no chance in this life. God, we are weak and frail, weaker than we know. And today we need a word from you to bring life, to make our stone hearts flesh. We need a word from you to transform our love and reshape our lives because God, we care. We care too much for little things. Our mind's attention and heart's affection is so often wrapped up in ourselves, and we need you today in the power of your spirit to destroy this false gospel that we are so prone to believe and give us a vision of what the good life is, what it means to live as redeemed children found in Jesus Christ. And God, I plead that for those who are far off, those who are far from you, That God, they would hear the hope, the love of the gospel. And that you indeed would make their dead hearts alive in the power of your spirit in Jesus Christ today. So God, I do pray that you work through your word, that you send your spirit to do the work that only he can. That you would recreate our affections and completely change our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Paul has labored throughout chapter 4 to demonstrate that how we live is a reflection of what we love. Paul then has one very important question from the text that he needs us to answer today. Have you learned Christ? So we look at verse 20. We see that the verb used there to learn Christ is unique in its use in this place in the New Testament. The word that Paul uses here gets at learning a skill. But Paul seems to be using it in the text to refer to getting to know a person, Jesus. Which would typically require an altogether different verb. But what Paul is doing here is connecting us to the reality that when we learn Christ, it not only reshapes our love, learning Christ, as we will see from the text today, teaches us to live in the world as we should. It teaches us the skill of walking as God's beloved in the world. Knowing Christ changes our lives. 
But there's a problem. And we see it in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Unless a person's affections have been recreated, unless their imaginations have been renewed, they are unable to live as they should in the world. Look at the text. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles being those who are far away from God in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to practice every kind of impurity. Those who are far off from God Do not, they cannot live as they were created to live. Their lives are characterized by greed, driven by lust, defined by impurity. Because as we see in verses 18 and 19, their hearts are hard, callous, void of the love that they were created to know. Their imaginations are imprisoned to a vision of the good life that finds every last ounce of its hope and joy in rotting and perishing things. It seeks out in empty relationships that have been hollowed out by self-indulgence, no hope at all in this world. And in their work, they find complete purposelessness. Because their work is devoid of direction. Paul in the text is announcing to those who are far off and to those who are near. That this is not the way the world is supposed to be. In fact, if you have learned Christ. Paul wants you to see in verses 22 and following. That the old self. Is no more. This is a definitive thing that has happened in Jesus Christ. Look at the text. That in reference to your former manner of life. Lay aside the old self. Which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self. Which in the likeness of God. Has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is hard. I don't know about you, but I spent most of my life caring about myself and myself only. In fact, most days I wake up caring about myself and myself only. I want to go back to sleep. I want to stay in bed. I don't want to deal with the world. That's all hard. When I get to work, I want things to go the way that I want them to go. When I come home, I want things to be the way that I want them to be. We have spent our lives enamored with a gospel that has no hope. With a gospel that preaches that we are sufficient in and of ourselves. And what Paul is getting at in the text is that the way you learn how to walk again, the way you learn how to live in the world is not by your own sheer force of will. In fact, that will fail you every single time. What Paul is saying is something definitive has happened in Jesus Christ. If you have been saved by him, if you have been adopted into his family, everything has changed. And the way you learn to live in the world is by learning over and over again new affections. It is rehearsing the reality time and time again of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Paul implores the church to have their minds and affections renewed by putting on and on again this truth. In fact, in the text, putting off happens as we continually put on this truth. Please do not miss this. If you don't get anything else today out of today's sermon, just this is it. 
putting off, no longer being who we were, happens by increasingly living into the reality of who we are presently in Christ Jesus. Putting off happens by putting on. You cannot put off on your own. You are weaker than you think you are. You need Jesus more than you think you do. We were dead, y'all. If we go back to Ephesians 2, we had no hope in this world. We were dead. Do you know what dead people can do? Nothing. But somehow we have convinced ourselves in this false gospel that we can somehow be righteous on our own. That we can put this stuff off. And Paul is saying to us today, no, you cannot do that. I did that. I did that in Jesus. I adopted you. I made you holy. I called you to myself. I gave you a new name. The old self is expelled as our imaginations are renewed with hope-filled possibilities that previously were not even conceivable to us because we were so without hope in the world. The old way of living is no longer worth it because our hearts have found the love that they were made for and they cannot go back. The old self is gone because in Christ Jesus, you are no longer dead. You have been made alive. Putting off happens by putting on. And it is the rehearsing of this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for sin, that he stood beneath the cost that we could never pay, that he accomplished what we could not, that he succeeded in every place where we failed. Jesus Christ made us alive. And it is this reality that expels every lesser affection in us. So before we go on and look at what this looks like, because Paul does an amazing job in our text today of just practically just getting down to it. If you're saved, what does it look like to live as a saved person? That's where we're going today. But before we get there, I need us to do something. We need to practice We need to rehearse the truth of what it means to be found in Christ Jesus. And I want to let Paul and what he's already done in the book of Ephesians guide us. So there's going to be some words up on the screen. And I would like us to read them together to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. Follow along with me. In Christ, I am holy and blameless predestined and adopted, redeemed by the blood of his son, a recipient of an imperishable inheritance that is sealed by the spirit. In Christ, I am raised from the dead, seated in the heavenly places. We are raised up, saved. God's workmanship, created for good works, brought near, reconciled, a citizen, a saint, part of God's temple. If you are in Christ Jesus, this is true of you right now. So if we are going to learn how we should live in the world, we have first got to understand what it means to love and be loved by God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do today. If we have learned Christ, how then should we live? And Paul gives us the answer in the text today. Paul wrote Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. So that the church might know how to live in the world as people who have had their minds, attention, and hearts, affection taken captive by the beauty of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is going to demonstrate in the text today six illustrations, six glimpses of how the gospel, 
the good news of what God has already accomplished in Jesus, of how that reforms our habits and completely reshapes our lives. So we'll see today that the gospel reshapes the Christian life to tell the truth, not lie. To exercise God's anger and not our own. That we'll work to give and not to have. That we will speak words that build up, not tear down. We will learn to walk in the spirit, not in the old way. And we will forgive and no longer condemn. So let's get after it. Let's look in verse 25. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul begins this section by affirming what he's already discussed. If your old manner of life has indeed definitively once and for all been put off in Christ, then falsehood has been put off also. But we will see in each of the examples today that Paul wants more for us than simply not doing something. The aim of the Christian life is not what we are against, but what we are for. The gospel is more about God calling us to himself than it is him calling us out of sin. Both of those things happen. Yes, they are both true. But Paul wants more from us than that in the text. To think about this a different way. Love for my wife cannot be characterized merely by not loving other women. It is that. But if all my love for my wife is, is not loving other women, then my love for her is anemic because my love is not for her. It is against everything else. In the Christian life, we are called to hate sin. Yes, but we hate sin because we are deeply, madly, irreversibly in love with God. We can only hate sin to the degree that we are in love with God. So in the text, loving Christ is characterized then by loving truth. And this, this is what leads us to hate falsehood. Thus, we are to speak true words in the world as we have been commanded by Jesus to love our neighbor. And how do we love our neighbor? We don't just avoid falsehood. We speak truth. And Paul is trying to get at in the text that this is Relevant for every place where we speak, but it is particularly relevant in the church. Paul started this argument way back in verses 12 through 16 and continues it here, insisting the truth must not only characterize individual members of God's family, it is to characterize his bride, the church. For we are members one of another. Lies within the church damage the body of Christ. They are stabs into the very vitals of his body. So if not lying is not enough, what are we then to do? How then should we speak in the world? What we are beckoned into in the gospel is to love truth so much that it fills our mouth with true words. This means that the call of Ephesians 4.25 is to expel lies through the proclamation of truth. If we are to live as people who love God, then it is the gospel on our lips that replaces the lies of our former loves. Gospel proclamation, heralding the reality of who we are presently in Christ Jesus and beckoning a world into that reality is how falsehood once and for all is put to death. 
You don't put falsehood to death. God put falsehood to death in Christ Jesus. That's happened. And we do it over and over and over again by proclaiming him. When I was in Germany, my wife and I lived there for a couple of years. We were connected with a pastor in town. And as I got to know him, as, I, as we got to know this church, in any accountability conversation or really any meaningful conversation that we had at all, there was a question that would always come up. And this was the question. Who are you sharing the gospel with and how is it going? I thought that was an interesting question to come up so frequently. So I was talking with the pastor one day and he had asked that question. I was like, that's a good question. We can, it's a really good question, but why is it the question that everybody is asking? And his response has transformed my life. He said that I can tell more about a person's spiritual health from the answer to this question than I can any other question that I would ask them or any other answer that I could get from them. Because if they are in love with Jesus, they will be proclaiming that love to the world. If they are in love with Jesus, then that will be the message that is on their lips. It will not be a message of lies. It will not be words that slander and bring down. No, when we love Jesus and proclaim the good news of his love for us, we cannot speak that and at the same time speak falsehood or malice or slander. The gospel on our lips is what expels sin. So whenever we are speaking, the call of Ephesians 4.25 it's to demonstrate our love for God in our love for truth by speaking the truth to one another in love. Next, in verses 26 and 27, we see that we are to exercise God's anger, not our own. Let's look at the text. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. This verse is weird. Seriously. And maybe you feel it. I felt it. I still feel it. Is Paul saying that I should be angry? Yes. But also no. And this is hard. Because as we'll see later in verse 31, Paul explicitly lists anger as something that should not characterize the life of one who is in Christ. And at the same time, here in verse 26, Paul is, seems to be commanding anger. It's an imperative. So what do we do with that? Paul's writing here be angry but sin not is an echo of Psalm 4 that is an invitation into a different type of anger. Paul is saying in the text that there is a way that Christians should be angry in the world. In chapter 5, Paul will write that God's anger will fall on the disobedient. Further, we see in the Gospels that Jesus was angry, namely at sin and injustice in the world. So there must be a good and true anger which God's people can learn from him. And it is this anger that is ours in Christ Jesus. Church, there is a great need in our pursuit of God to learn and reclaim his anger and exercise it well in the world. We have become far too comfortable and complacent with sin. 
We compromise with sin in a way that God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should too, because they love God and are beloved by him. If God is against evil in the world, then God's people should be as well. This means that when the world is not as it should be, God's people follow in the prophetic line of Christ and boldly proclaim God's displeasure to evil in the world. We should be just as angry over abortion as we are over children ripped from their parents having died in cages in the custody of the border patrol. That is not the way the world is supposed to be. There is a holy anger that God calls us into. And this holy anger, do not miss this, this holy anger is nonetheless always in Christ characterized by love. For we were against God. We hated his way. We were in rebellion against him. We wanted nothing to do with him. We were happy to be dead. And he hated our unrighteousness. And yet, while we were in rebellion, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you were to exercise God's anger in the world, it cannot be void of God's love as well. And we cannot miss this in the text. Not being angry is not enough. The aim of the Christian life is not just to tiptoe around and not be angry at anything. There are things that should deeply anger us because they deeply anger God. The call of Ephesians 4 is to transform our anger so that it is no longer our anger being exercised in the world. No, we now become the prophetic voice in the line of Jesus Christ proclaiming his anger against evil and injustice and sin in the world. This is what characterizes the people of God. Yet, And this is a giant yet. At the same time, Paul is quick in this text to remind us of our fallenness and our weakness. He does this by immediately qualifying the exercise of God's anger with three prohibitions. First, do not sin. If we are to rightly express God's anger in the world, then our anger must be free from our own injured pride, from spite or malice or revenge. Second, the sun is not to go down on our anger. The intention here is to guard against anger that smolders and comes back to flame. And also teaches us That we can trust God when we go to sleep to be angry at sin and injustice in the world for us because he does not sleep. Even in being angry in the world, God invites us into his rest. And lastly, our anger is to give no opportunity to the devil The separation between holy and unholy anger is indeed a fine line. And the devil loves to lurk around it, looking for angry people, hoping to exploit their malice for the advance of his kingdom. So in evaluating our anger, I think there's two questions from the text that we have to ask. First, whose kingdom is my anger advancing? And second, is my anger aimed and grounded in love? Love of God, of his glory, and of those who are created in his image? Or is my anger grounded in love of myself, of my glory, and based 
on accepting those who are conformed to my own image. Church, God's anger is never for a moment separated from his love. His hatred of sin is not without sacrifice to save sinners. God's wrath is not void of his patience. The call then is to give up our own anger and exercise his in the world instead. In verse 28 then, we see that belonging to Christ also transforms our work. Look with me in the text. Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul echoes the eighth commandment here in his admonition against stealing. Yet Paul is not saying that in Christ it is enough to simply not steal. In fact, theft stands against the created order. It is deeply sinful and this idea can be drawn out from the whole of the law and from how God created itself. God created people in the garden for work. Work from the beginning has been good. But just as not stealing does not display fully the love of God at work in us, there is also a kind of work that we can engage in that obscures the gospel. In the text, we actually see a progression from an inferior to superior way of life. Paul first says that you can steal in order to have. But next, he seems to say that you can work in order to have. And lastly, he puts forward a vision of work in the world reimagined where we work in order to give, not in order to have. The first two ways of life describe an illegal way and a legal way of satisfying the drive of lust and greed in us. You can be driven by greed to steal and you can be driven by greed to work. One is illegal, the other is legal, both are sinful. And this is not what we are called to. We are not called to simply go about avoiding sin. We are called to invite people into a different transformative way of life that represents our King and what has been accomplished in the sacrificial death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Loving God transforms our work and makes it about giving and not about having. The most radical thing about this part of the text is that we are commanded to do all of our work in the world with a view toward meeting the needs of others. This means that in Christ Jesus, none of your work is wasted. It means that every last minute of your work, the meetings and the conference calls, navigating kids in the classroom, giving patients stitches, the tax work that you do for a client, the software that you develop, if your aim is to give generously to others and to glorify God. Not one minute, not one second of your day is a waste. God is redeeming in Christ Jesus everything that we do in the world. And in the text, Paul is inviting us to reimagine the way we work. And in doing so, to see that he redeems all of it to the praise of his glorious grace. So the point here is not just an admonition against thievery, though it certainly is that. 
But please see in the text that Paul is stating that greed and lust, they have no part among God's people. This means that you, you might be hard at work in your parenting and your homeschooling to raise up little model citizens for the glory of your own name. And that work, that work is empty. That work is dead. That work is useless. God has no time for it because it is a love that is warped. It is empty. There is no hope in that work. It means that if you are working longer and longer hours, for the next promotion, to be recognized at the next meeting, to have your boss finally see that what you do is worthy and amazing, then you have become the God of your own work and the weariness you feel is exhaustion at sacrificing every other part of your life at the altar of success. And if you're a student, Killing yourself for another A+. The gospel proclaims that work is meant for life, not death. There is a better way to live. Church, our work is not our own. If we are Christ, if we belong to him, then our work belongs to him. Which means our work, what we spend our days doing is no longer ours. It no longer belongs to us. It cannot be about us and the recognition we receive and the riches we accumulate and the accolades that we hoard. No, no. Our work is for the benefit of the glory of God and to spread the good news of the gospel of what it means to be in Christ to a lost and dead world. That is what work is for in Christ. And this gospel doesn't just transform our work. It transforms our words. Look with me in the text starting in verse 29. Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Not only is our work reimagined in the gospel, every word we say is too. Not only are we to speak what is true, as we saw in verse 25, we are also to speak that which is grace. Again, Paul in the text is not merely calling believers to refrain from talk that corrupts or rots. No, he is reimagining our speech, speaking life into a dead world that is decaying and rotting out. In Christ, it is not enough to spend our days refraining from unwholesome talk. No, our speech is to be characterized by something else entirely. Its purpose is to build up and to give grace. While corrupting talk is like a rotten vegetable that spoils everything else around it and is completely useless. Speech that gives grace is like salt that preserves and gives life, as we see in Colossians 4. So while the default work of our tongues is destruction, as we see in James, the Christian life is instead to be characterized by words that build, words that bring life. Indeed, if we have come to know God and the life that is in him, This language of decay is put away once and for all because as we increasingly meditate on God's words to us, as we fall deeper in love with the word made flesh, Jesus, our words become his words. And as our affections are captured, taken hold of by what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus, we can do nothing else in this world than proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness into glorious light. 
So what kind of talk corrupts? We see from verse 25 that certainly dishonest talk corrupts. But it is also gossip and slander. Vulgar and crude speech and angry outbursts that destroy. Each one in their own way works to rip apart and bring death. So how are we to discern whether our words are bringing life or death? I just have four questions for us to kind of start with. First, how do I speak to others when they seem to stand in the way of my dream? Next, what happens to my talk when circumstances are hard? Third, how much does my speech express a spirit of thankfulness and contentment? And lastly, do my words encourage others to put their trust and rest in the Lord? You want to get at whether your speech is bringing life or death? Walk through these four questions. And if your speech is bringing death, I need us to see that there in the text is hope there for you. Just as there was hope for the thief in the previous verses, so there is hope also for the gossip, for the slanderer, for the angry and the vulgar. Just as the former thief now spends his life helping in cases of need and working to bring about benefits. So the person formerly that spent their life offending others with corrupting language, tearing down in the world, their language now in Christ meets the needs of others. It builds them up with grace. It speaks life. Please don't miss this. The defeat of sin in our lives cannot be separated from the reality of who we are presently in Christ Jesus. If our efforts to defeat sin are based on our own effort, our own self-righteousness, that will buckle under the weight of our sin every single time and we will fail. Church, we are weaker than we know. We need Christ more than we think we do. And the pursuit of holiness in this life is powered by putting on time and time and time again the truth of what it means to be a child of God and then living into that reality by doing the things that children of God do. And this means that neither our words nor our work can ever be redeemed or worth anything apart from Christ Jesus. And if you think they can, the gospel this morning is telling you you're wrong. Next, in verse 30, we are encouraged by Paul to walk in the spirit and not in the old way. Look at the text. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here Paul is really just trying to summarize the preceding verses by reminding us that we are to refrain from grieving the Holy Spirit of God by living as those who have instead been sealed by his Spirit awaiting our inheritance that is secure for us in heaven. Again, in the text, not doing something is not sufficient. 
The crucial key to the entire passage is that sin is expelled in the Christian life as we increasingly rehearse the gospel and develop new habits, imagine new ways of living in the world that are all fueled by new affections for Jesus. Paul draws on Isaiah 63 here to convey deeply that sin as rebellion against God will always grieve him. So we are no longer to live as those whose affections are captured by the world. No, we are to live in a different way as those who have been saved and sealed for the day of redemption, as those who have been made alive in Christ Jesus, those whose affections have been resurrected to love as they always should. We were not created to avoid sin. We were created to be holy and pursue holiness with our lives as we eagerly await union with him. And this leads us to Paul's last example in the text. In verses 31 and 32, let's look. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul concludes these examples with a list. Bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, malice. These things are to be put away not a part of your life at all. How does this happen? By being kind to one another, by being tender, by being forgiving. I learned this verse when I was a kid. You may have too. Some of you may teach it to your kids. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Right? But my instruction ended in be kind, be tender-hearted, forgive one another. These were things I needed to do. And the gospel in Ephesians 4 doesn't just have something to say about how we live. It has something to say about how we teach others to live. You see, if our instruction to our children looks like be kind, be tender, be forgiving, then we are teaching law and not grace. That what this whole enterprise is about is just checking boxes. Was I kind and tender and forgiving? Check, check, check. But what if our motivation, what if our entire affection for wanting to act this way in the world was just based solely on wanting to avoid pain that comes in punishment? Then let me tell you that this kindness, this tenderness, this forgiveness that is warped by law and devoid of grace, will not last in the world. What we need to be teaching our children is how to have different and new affections. We teach them to love their neighbor. We teach them that being kind, that being tender, that being forgiven is a reflection of what God does in his love to us. And that changes our affections, which then changes the way that we live in the world. We don't need more knowledge. We need more love. So what is the power for this new way of living in the world? 
Paul gives it to us here at the end of the text. It is in Christ's forgiveness that we are able to forgive. It is in God's love for us that we are able to love him and then reflect that love in the world. And this means that if we have been forgiven by God, then we are no longer condemned. For there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. No, if we are no longer condemned but forgiven, then that means that not just our forgiveness, but every other aspect of our lives becomes transformed, renewed. It becomes the way it was always supposed to be because our hearts have found the love that they've always longed for, the love that we indeed were made for. And this is the point of the entire passage. If we want to hate sin, we must first love God and love him deeply. We cannot develop hatred in a vacuum. No, for us to hate something, we must have a great and surpassing affection for something else first. So if your aim in the Christian life is to hate sin, is to not sin, the way you get at that is by putting off, by putting on, by rehearsing time and again the gospel. Church, we don't graduate from the gospel. Because the gospel says that our self-righteousness isn't going to cut it. Dead people don't make themselves alive. God has called his people to holiness. He has acted in Christ once and for all to make those who he has drawn near holy. And is working presently in the power of his spirit to bring about holiness. If love is our aim, we will not fail in the pursuit of holiness. Because we are loved by God. So if you have learned Christ, you haven't just learned a person. You've learned a new way to live. And what I want us to think about now is does our life reflect our love or at least the love that we proclaim? And if it doesn't, this text tells you that there's hope. The thief doesn't steal anymore. He now gives generously because he works as God always wanted him to. The one who spent all of their lives, spent all of their words bringing death and destruction, they no longer do that. Their words now bring life. They bring the life of the gospel. Perhaps the rhythm, the habit that we need to develop today is confession. To be contrite before God, sorrowful that we ever loved someone that was not him. Y'all, what God has done in Jesus Christ is beautiful. Can you imagine killing your son, slaughtering him, and dumping on him all of the wrath that you have for literally every other person and everything they've ever done for love. Y'all, we couldn't make it. We couldn't do it. We were dead. We had no hope. We did not have a chance. We were bound for hell. Our effort, our blood, our sweat, our tears was leading us there in a hurry. But God, in his kindness, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. 
And we want to act like we don't need it. We want to act like we've moved past it. Y'all, we haven't. We need to hear that we were dead, that we didn't have a hope, and that apart from God, we don't have any hope. We need to understand deeply at the beginning of every day of our lives that we are weaker than we know, and we need Christ more than we think we do. And that means that when we gather here on Sunday, we should be quick to confess, quick to worship, quick to have our hearts stirred again and again for the first love that we met, that we were made for in Christ Jesus. We need God's love so that we can live in the world as we should. Because when we don't live in the world as we should, it is full of brokenness, full of death, full of destruction. And that may be where you are today. You may be dead in your life, separated from God, having no hope, working purposelessly. Can I tell you that the good news of what God has done in Christ Jesus is for you today? It's for all of us. How do we move forward? We engage in practices that stir our affections for love of God. You want to hate sin? Love God's word. Read it, eat it, consume it so that you would become so full of the promises of God that you would have no appetite remaining for sin. You want to defeat sin in your life? Confess your love for God and for his gospel in Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And y'all, this starts at the table. We're going to have a time right now where those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have been saved by the grace of God, will come to eat of his body, to drink of his blood, to remember what has been accomplished in Jesus. And what that means for us as those who were once far off and have been brought near. This meal is meant to stir our affections and prompt us to live as a new people in the world. In remembering God's sacrifice in Christ Jesus, we are invited to confess sin. To confess that we have lived in a way that we were never intended. And as we taste of the cracker and the juice, we enter in again to the truth of the gospel that God killed his son, that we would live as holy people in the world. And with renewed affections and renewed imaginations, we reform our lives in the world. If you are far off from God, if you have not tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus, this meal is not for you, but this time right now is for you to think on the beauty, the hope-filled glory that God holds out to you in Christ Jesus. But my prayer for all of us in this time is that we would not do what we do every week and just eat a cracker and drink some juice and go about in our lives like nothing has changed. Something changed. God killed his son to make us holy. Which means we should love holiness. So I'm going to pray. We're going to take the meal. And then we're going to worship. God, we need you in this time, in the power of the Spirit to come and to meet us. 
to meet us and show us that there is a better way to live. There is a different way to be in the world because of the love with which you have loved us in Christ. So as we take of the bread and the cup, we do that remembering that once and for all in Christ Jesus, death and sin have been put to death. And we are invited now instead into a new way of living as we have been in the gospel made alive. So God, today there should be confession. There should be weeping. There should be reconciliation. There should be peace coming forth from destruction and ashes. God, make dead hearts alive in the gospel right now. Draw to yourself a people. that are deeply concerned for holiness because they are deeply in love with you. Stir our affections. Change our lives, we pray. Amen. So I invite you to the table to renew your affections, to change your life. If you need prayer, I'll be up front. I'd love to do that. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good.